Well, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, you can look at Exodus chapter 4, and we want you to put your eyes on the Word of God so that it's not just me up here talking. Exodus chapter 4, we're going to pick it up in the second half of the chapter as we continue our series through the book of Exodus. Uh, as you're turning there, uh, probably the, the best piece of advice I can give parents, uh, or especially dads, is to read to your children. Read to them as young as possible. Read to them for as long as possible. Read to them as often as possible. This one practice will bear a ton of fruit in your relationship with your children, in just exploring uh, good literature, exploring good books. Uh, This is one thing. I I mess up a lot, a lot, a lot as a father, but this one thing has been a blessing to me and my kids. And even in high school, I continued to read to them. So... uh, Men, especially, if you feel like uh, theologically you're not quite where your, your wife is or where you should be, this is great. You can progress through some theological books with your kids and grow up spiritually as they grow up as well. Uh, but you get some chances to read good series of books, and, and if you do it long enough, you get some chances to read some series over. And we're currently working our way through the third time through the Chronicles of Narnia. And we're, we're still going through that. And you probably know that there's some allegory from the world of Narnia to the world of, of reality in the universe of who God is. And, and most obviously through uh, the character of Aslan, the lion, the son of the emperor from across the sea. And in the, that book, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, the most famous scene is when the children are going to be taken to meet him and they they're told you're going to go meet the lion. Uh, Susan says, or Lucy, I'm, I can't, was it Susan or Lucy? Susan, okay. Okay, one of those two girls, there's only two girls. Uh, one of those two girls are like, ooh, I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver's like, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's the lion, he's the king, but he's good. Just this beautiful picture. And then throughout the, the books, Aslan is going to make different uh, appearances and, and in different ways. And, and in other books, he's going to not make any appearance, but you can tell he's in control of everything running in the background. Uh, but then there are other times when he shows up and he's unrecognizable. He's scary. He's terrifying. I, I think of uh, the book, The Horse and His Boy. Uh, these two talking horses and these two children uh, in the story, there's this scene where they're, they're told that they, they need to get to a certain place by a certain time. They need to go on this journey. And they're, as they're making their way, they, they've begun to slow down. And then all of a sudden, out of the forest comes this ferocious lion with anger and fire in his eyes and sharp teeth. And he begins to chase them and with razor sharp claws, swipes at them and even hits, hits one of them. And, and there's pain and there's, uh, there's fear and there's running and fleeing. And, and eventually, the the horses and the children get to where they go. And we only find out later that that lion was also Aslan. He was moving them along. You might call it his severe mercy. He was getting them to where they needed to go. Now, now the reason I I tell that story is because when I first read this passage, there's there's this scene that we're going to look at today. And I thought of that kind of Aslan. Still good. But not safe, for as they'll say throughout the books, he's not a tame lion. 
So uh, a couple weeks ago, we, uh, we came to this cornerstone verse in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where, where God, God of the cosmos, comes and condescends to have a conversation through a, a fire to Moses. And in the midst of that conversation, he, Moses asks for God's name. Remember that? And what does God say? I am who I am. That's my name. Tell them I am sent you. And we said, man, that is more than a name. It's a built-out theology that, that we're only going to learn more and more and more and more and more about as the book progresses and as the Old Testament progresses and as the New Testament progresses and as eternity progresses, we'll learn more and more. And we said this, the more we know about I am, the God, the more we know about ourselves. I am not. And both of those things are very good things to know. I know I am, but I am not, right? I am not, but I know I am. We, we said that this is what life is all, all about. That the narrative of the universe is to know God, to be known by God, and to make him known. And, and so insofar as our lives are lined up with that narrative, we're on narrative. When it gets off and it starts to be about ourselves, our own pursuits, our own selfishness, whatever the case may be, we, we've lost the narrative. And so we've said we want to return each week to the narrative, to know him to be known by him, to make him known, which then begs the question, how do we know if we know? What would you say to that? How how do you know if you actually know God and are known by God? We might might give some some answers. We we might say, well, you know, I I had a religious experience. It was an emotional time. I felt it. Okay. You might say, well, no, I've, I've checked the right boxes theologically and doctrinally. I, I know God because my theology is right. Okay. Uh, I, I know God because I, I prayed a prayer that someone told me to pray at one time to, to invite God into my life. And, and I was 12, I was 20, I, I prayed it last week, whatever the case may be. That's how I know. Well, well this passage is going to say, not that any of those things are wrong. In fact, all those things might indeed be part of the way that you know, but there's a much deeper way, a much more consistent way that the Bible consistently lays out for us for how do we know that we know? How do we know if we're on the narrative? This is what Exodus chapter 4, I think, is going to begin to hint at for us. So here's where we're going to look at. We're going to look at the second half of Exodus chapter 4, 18 to the end. But, but your Bible might have a subheading, Moses' return to Egypt. In some sense, it's like, okay, the conversation with God is, is done. It's all ready. He's, he's reassured him. He's given him promises. He's answered his objections. He's given him signs and wonders. And now he's sent him off. And so you might be tempted to read Exodus 4, the second half, and just say, oh, it's just moving the narrative along. But it's more than that. This is here for our edification. This is here for our our, our affection. This is here for our learning. 
that there are six scenes that take place that move pretty quickly. I'm going to summarize five of them and then we'll dig deeper into one of them. So in in verse 18, he goes to his father-in-law, has that conversation with the family. We're going back to Egypt. Father-in-law Jethro gives the blessing. In in verse 19, God is talking to him and says, now Moses, you, you don't longer have a wanted, most wanted sign around Egypt because all the people that were seeking your life are dead. So you can relax. God is preparing Moses even as he's journeying along. In verse 20, it says, Moses, don't forget that staff that you have in your hand. Remember the staff that turned into a snake. Remember the staff that will do so much in the future. It's a tangible, physical sign of God's presence with you, Moses, so that every step back to Egypt, it's a reminder that God is with me. God is with me. In verse 21, he prepares them for what he's going to encounter when he actually makes it to Egypt. We'll, we'll read it. It says, The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you, uh, given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. He just, we'll get into that hardening of Pharaoh's heart in a couple weeks in more depth where it's really repeated. But, but in, in this moment, what, what God is preparing Moses for, he's like, when you go and you do all these things, don't expect him to just give in to you. I'm going to harden his heart. I'm still in control of this. Don't worry, Moses. I'm preparing you. Then verse 22. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. Now, now, stop for a moment and think about that. Now, this is the very first time in Scripture where God's covenant people are described as his children. Israel is my firstborn son. Of course, this is going to develop and into the life and ministry of Jesus. This is going to be the predominant descriptor. God the Father. Pray like this. Our Father. This relationship. But this was new. And if Moses is going to go tell Pharaoh, hey, the Lord... The God of the universe has said, these are my children. What would Pharaoh's response would have been to me? I mean, if he texted Pharaoh that, he'd probably respond back, LOL. <laughs> like, you serious? What, what kind of God calls these scum of the earth people his children? What kind of impotent God? I have the gods of the Egyptians. And we oppress them and we enslave them. Clearly, there's no God who loves these people. Or if he does, he has no power. It would have been ridiculous. And, and so it goes on. And, and, and God prepares Moses for, for really the, the culmination of what's going to happen in verse 22. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. It's a foreshadow of the plague of the death of the firstborn. What God is saying is, you're oppressing my son. You're enslaving my son. You're murdering my son. If you do not stop, your punishment will be on your sons. And we'll eventually see that. So God, again, is preparing. Jump down to verse 27. Uh, Now we have some... The, the story com- uh, continues. He has a sweet, sweet reunion with his brother that he probably hasn't seen in 40 years that God has already told him is coming. And has this sweet reunion. They, they share all. They get excited. Then they finally make their way into Egypt in verse 29. Uh, Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people. Verse 31. And they believed. Remember, that was Moses' big concern. Lord, what if I go and they don't believe me? He says, they believed. 
That tells us something about worry. He, had, he, had, he shouldn't have been worrying, but that's a different sermon for another time. It says, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and seen their misery. Remember, at the end of chapter 2, they were crying out in their misery. But now they've heard that there's a God who sees and is concerned and is about to act. And so they respond. They bow down and worship. This is the right and good response. Now, the the people of Israel are going to have lots of bad responses in the future. But right here, this is just a a sweet scene. So so in these five scenes, it's actually kind of a kind of a sweet, sweet moment. It's a sweet moment. Until we look at the scene in the middle. And the scene in the middle is maybe the most confusing scene in all of Exodus. Bible scholars love it because you can't make sense of it. That's what one commentary said. And there is a lot of mystery. And there is going to be a lot of questions. But in this few verses, there is a nugget of truth that we can glean out of it, that God has for us, that, that I believe is the key for us to know if we know. See, my hope here is before we jump into really into the meat of this, my, my hope is twofold here this morning. One, that, there, that you would either get a confidence or some clarity. Confidence or clarity. My, my hope is if, if you are a follower of God and you know God and are known by God, that, that you would hear what is, is happening in this moment. And uh, though, not, though we don't, none of us do it perfectly, you would just be reaffirmed by the Spirit in you in a confidence. Man, I know I am and I am known by I am. This is amazing. And you would leave here with fresh joy and fresh worship that there would be confidence. And then, for others, I've been praying all week that there would be clarity. There would be clarity. That, that if you don't actually know, that, that maybe you came in here and, and you thought you knew because you were relying on that experience or that prayer or, or the right doctrine, but, but in the end you find out, actually, there is a huge gap. I don't really know. I, I pray that there would be clarity in that moment. And, and that may sound harsh. And, and by the way, there, I have no desire uh, to be harsh in this moment. What, what I'm going to say might come across as harsh, but that's not my desire. My desire is to, in line with even Jesus, would, when the crowds would often gather, he, he, would, he would warn them. He would say, many of you think you know me, but you don't know me. And the reality is you're going to spend an eternity apart from hell, apart from me in hell, if you don't know me. And Jesus saying that, he wasn't being cruel. He wasn't being mean. He was being as loving as possible. It's like, this is serious. So my prayer is that there would be clarity and confidence. Clarity and confidence. So let's look at this passage. Verse 24. It said, I had a lodging place on the way. So they're on their way to Egypt. The Lord met Moses. Okay, we've seen that before. The Lord, that's all caps, I am met Moses and was about to kill him. What? What? What do you mean? Why is God about to kill Moses? Like, God has, has been unfolding his plan from, from the beginning of time and it's been culminating now up until this point to Moses. He's met with Moses. He knows Moses' history. He's assured Moses. He's promised Moses. He's given him signs of wonders. He's answered his objections. He's now, even throughout this whole passage, he's encouraging him. He's preparing him. And then all of a sudden, in verse 24, it says, the Lord was about to kill him. Hello? 
what? Well, what? Well, let me just let me just comfort you. The next verses won't get any easier. <laughs> they will get more confusing before we get clarity. Verse twenty-five. But Zipporah, his wife, took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. And I'll just say this: in the Hebrew, it's more confusing than that. Then she says, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. Grace and mercy comes flooding in. At the time she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. What in the world is going on? Again, there is a lot of mystery here, even in the, especially in the Hebrew. Like who is, like we don't actually know who is about to die. Is it Moses or Moses' son? That, that's actually not super clear in the Hebrew, but it's one of them. Uh, but but what, is going, what do we do know? Well, at the end, uh, it says this bridegroom of blood. Again, we and scholars don't know exactly what, what is meant by that, but, but Moses gives us a clarifying comment at the very end referring to circumcision. Okay, so a couple weeks ago, we talked about, uh, before we started Exodus, to understand the narrative arc of the Bible, you, you have to understand the backbone of it, which is the covenants. The way God relates to people is through covenant. The way people are welcomed in, the way people are forgiven, the way, the way people have a future and a hope is covenant. And so there's all these covenants we trace, right? And, and we said covenants are, are more than just contracts, all that. So the closest thing we have in our society is a covenant of marriage, right? So at, at the covenant of marriage, we will we'll gather and we'll say things like for richer or for poorer. In sickness and in health, in good times or bad. What we're saying to the other person is, I'm all in with you, no matter what. And then there's a sign of that covenant. In our cultural moment, it is the sign of the ring. And the the ring, we, we, we say, doesn't make me married, but the ring is a public profession to the world that I am a married man in covenant with Jen Oshman. I'm all in. And this is a sign. Well, uh, throughout the book of Exodus so far, God has not only revealed his name, he's repeatedly been referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And every time that, that those names are put together, you immediately think, oh, the covenant with Abraham. So, what is the covenant with Abraham? Well, let me put this, this verse on the screen. Genesis chapter 17, after God makes this covenant, this promise, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. You're going to be my people and I'll be, be your God. He says, here's the sign. Now, now, notice the seriousness of the sign. It says, then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Okay, so there's that, the circumcised again. There's a connection. Then it says, my covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So God has said, I take my covenant seriously. Now let's come back to Moses. So, so what we see is God doesn't have this like gray zone. Do you kind of know him? Do you kind of not? Are you kind of in or are you kind of out? Jesus was very clear with this as well. The line is very, very stark. 
You're either inside the covenant or you're outside. There's no middle way. And inside the covenant, you are... uh, You have hope, you have a future, you have forgiveness, you have life. You are a citizen of heaven inside the covenant. Outside of the covenant, there's death and there's judgment. There's no hope. There's no future. You are a citizen of hell. How is Moses living his life? In this moment, we see. It's as if God has come to Moses and has said, what the hell are you doing? And I, I don't mean that ironically or jokingly. He's saying, you are living like you're not in the covenant. And you're going to lead my people, my covenant people, my son, Israel, and you're going to be disobedient to the covenant? This is not a new command, Moses. You know this. What are you doing? Why do you consider obedience optional, Moses? Praise God, Zipporah, immediately, though she's not an Israelite, steps into the moment and understands the connection. She gets the flint knife, which just sounds dull and painful. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to make a light moment here, but she she cuts the, the foreskin and takes it and touches Moses with it. And it says, and then God relents. He's he's now in the covenant again. He's at least living like who he actually is in the covenant. So so the question there becomes is, how can we know? How can we know that we know? How can we know that we are known? What's the biblical response? Or, Or another question, I'll put it on the screen here. Is your life marked by obedience rooted in faith? I'm not talking about perfect obedience. That's the whole point of the gospel. I'm not talking about like we have every box checked and we're always just obedient. We're always acting like citizens of heaven. No, the gospel is very clear. That's not true of us, but that is true of Christ. Our righteousness comes explicitly and wholly and only from the righteousness of Jesus. That is the gospel. But then there are other commands. If that's true of you, the Bible will repeatedly say, for those that are in the covenant and have the Spirit of God, here's what the Spirit of God likes. Here's what the Spirit of God's doing in your life. Here's what the Spirit of God pursues. The Spirit of God pursues obedience to the Lord, the King of Kings. He's not a tame lion, but he's good. My fear is, in a church that preaches rightly so, every week that our righteousness is absolutely and wholly dependent on Christ's righteousness. My fear is that that can come into this room and somehow be twisted to mean that, okay, I don't have to do anything. Okay, I should not respond in any way. It's all on him. I'll live however I want to live. And I'm, I'm telling you that if there is no desire even a hint of desire. There's no stumbling forward in obedience to the commands of Christ. If there's just nothing in you that says, takes the Lord seriously and takes his holiness seriously, I'm telling you, you should not consider yourself a Christian because that's what the Spirit does. And people who know God and are known by God have the Spirit in their lives. And so, Is your life marked by obedience rooted in faith? 
Now, now we know, we know we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. That was the whole point of the Romans series. But our faith alone, our faith is never to remain alone. That was the whole point of the James series, right? Saved by grace alone through faith alone. Now that we're saved, let's live like we're saved. This is James' message, right? And, and you can, you should be able to look at your life or at least look, is there any desire when, when you see a commander, feel a conviction of the spirit to say, I want to obey. I want to, I need your help. But, but, but I want to obey. So, so again, my fear is that, that we could be in a church with such right doctrine of, of justification that we don't understand that God cares about sanctification. So we can say stuff like, well, my righteousness doesn't come from me being committed to, uh, in a covenant way, a local church. So I'll just go when I want. And if the, those, church, those people make me angry, I'll go to the next one. Because my righteousness doesn't come from that. We, we could say, my righteousness doesn't come from my sexual purity, and so I'm just going to look at what I want, I'm going to pursue who I want, I'm going to do all that, and if I feel a little bit guilty, I'll ask God for forgiveness, because that's kind of the deal we have. That's not evidence. You should have no confidence if that's how you live. My righteousness doesn't come from being a generous person to giving to the kingdom of God. That's absolutely true. Therefore, I'll just live like everyone else and if there's some dollars left at the end of the month, I will tip God. My righteousness doesn't come from care for the poor, the oppressed, the widow, and the orphan. My righteousness is all from Christ. And so if my life is okay and if I get everything lined up perfectly, then I might consider what I could do for the care, for the care of the poor, the oppressed, the widow, and the orphan. My righteousness doesn't come from my obedience to the great commission to make disciples. It comes from Jesus. Therefore, I'm going to put that in a category of my, in my mind of extra credit Christians. Brothers and sisters, these are New Testament commands, every one of them, to be obeyed because he's the king. He's the lion of Judah. But more than that, our joy, our hope, we'll see our power is dependent on walking in step with the Spirit in these things. Alec Moitier, who's a commentator, he wrote this about this passage. He says, The Lord treats obedience with a seriousness that is in marked contrast to our casual and self-excusing ways. So, so we want to know God. Be known by God. To make Him known. So this is a moment to realign our lives. The Old Testament, the, the, the covenant that Moses was, was, was breaking, or the covenant sign was circumcision. In the New Testament, the, the, there is just this very close, very, 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 very close correspondence to our belief of saving faith, being born again in Jesus, and our baptism. Almost so much that sometimes they'll say, what must I do to be saved? Well, believe and be baptized. Now, we we don't believe that your baptism saves you, but it should be the very first or one of the first steps of obedience in following King Jesus. So it boggles my mind when American Christians are like, oh, I'll take it or leave it. No, this is not a game. Brothers and sisters, God takes his covenant seriously. Now, in January, we're going to have a two-week baptism class, so we'll get into deeper into that. But, but, but we shouldn't treat the commands of God with cavalier attitudes. 
all around the world and throughout church history, baptism has been a huge, huge deal. Right? So I had a friend, Nadia. She is from a Muslim background, Muslim family, Muslim country in Africa. She had married an American service member, had become a Christian in our, in our ministry, and uh, was teaching us all these things. But, but then she, she said, hey, uh, will you pray for me? I'm going to call my family and tell them I'm a Christian now. And we're like, yeah, 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 we'll pray for you. Whatever, yeah, we always tell people we're Christians. It's fine. She's like, no, no, please just pray for me. And we're like, okay. So, so we prayed for her. We said, Nadia, how'd it go? Oh, they were, they, were, they were very angry. Oh, yeah? She's like, but now I have to tell them that you're going to baptize me. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what we do. We, we believe and we're baptized. She's like, well, okay, well, just pray, pray for me in that. Okay, we'll pray for you. And then... She gets baptized. We got the privilege of baptizing her. And then uh, we're like, okay, you're going to tell your family? She's like, yes. And come back. How'd it go? Oh, my family was very angry when I became a Christian. But when I told them that I got baptized, my brother said, if we ever see you again, we will kill you. This is not uncommon. Response in, in world history and in the world today. And we can, just in our comfort and security and safety, treat it as an option? It's insanity. So how do we know? How do we know if we have confidence or clarity? Our confidence is knowing God and being known by God comes from our obedience rooted in faith. Again, I'm not talking about perfect obedience. For, for some of us, it's the best we can do. Like that one guy that came to Jesus who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And if that's all you could do today, that's enough. We're not asking for perfection. It's just, is there any desire? And if there is any desire, then you can rest in knowing that the Spirit of God is at work. I'm a work in progress. I'm not there yet, but I'm making steps. I'm stumbling forward in obedience to Christ. So even in our passage, did you notice? Did you notice the space for grace? This is at a lodging place on the way. The Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. There's space for grace there. God didn't have to delay. In fact, God never had to, God knew all this about Moses up until this point. Like he could have taken him out in an instant. But it, he, he's about to kill him. It's like Aslan about to strike the children off the horse. He's about to, but he doesn't. There's space for grace. So let's give it up for Zipporah, right? Who steps into that space and, 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 and saves Moses. By the way, maybe you've noticed this. This is now the sixth woman in four chapters that has saved Moses who is totally, totally incapable of saving himself. Shipra and Pua, uh, Moses' mom and sister, Pharaoh's daughter, and now Zipporah. So let's give it up for Zipporah. Uh, but let's give it up also for, for Moses, who eventually writes this down and in his humility uh, writes something unflattering about it. Man, I, he was about to kill me, but praise God for his grace and mercy. But let's give it up to, for God, who does make that space. This is why I'm praying for clarity. Because if you have clarity and you recognize this morning, hey, actually, I don't know the Lord. There's space. Because there's space for Jesus to come in. So you can know me. You can be known by me. You can make me known in your life. So what areas of your life is there disobedience or delayed obedience? And here's the deal. That's all of us. You should be more concerned if when I ask that question, you're like, nah, I'm good. Because we're all works in progress. We all have these areas of disobedience. And the Spirit's like, hey, 
King Jesus wants you to walk in faith in this area. We, we all have these areas. Or we have these areas of delayed obedience. I'll be faithful. I'll be generous. I'll, I'll, I'll be on mission later in life. Well, Jesus wants to empower you now. So, so this, is, this is also for our joy, by the way. Jesus said it, right before he ascended to the right hand of the Father in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, uh, you, you will receive power when the Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in uh, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we wonder in, in our lives why, why it doesn't seem like there's any power to this Christian life. We read the book of Acts and we're like, well, I'm just in Parker and nothing's happening. Well, the power, notice even in what Jesus says, the power is tied to the purpose. The purpose is to make him known and be known by him. So as, as long as we're pursuing that purpose, that power then is starting to flow in our lives. So this is why we need to walk in obedience. We want to be people that walk in power on mission with God, on the narrative. And more than that, we want to be a church of full of people, full of the Holy Spirit, walking in power on mission with God for our neighbors and the nations. It's his grace and mercy to us this morning that he's inviting us to that. So let me pray for us. Let me pray for you. And we'll come to this table once again. Father God, we are grateful for the space of grace that you've provided for Moses and for us. Lord, we're grateful that we have more than a staff to hold on to. We have a cross to cling to that has shown us that we are forgiven if we turn to you by grace through faith. Lord, help us to be a people that walk in step with your spirit. Lord, I pray that if anyone does know you and and are known by you today, that their worship would be louder, their, their joy would be higher because of the realization that the God of the universe knows them and is known by them. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here yet who has not yet bowed the knee, to the Lordship of Christ in belief and trust. Lord, I pray that that, this moment they would see you on the cross and receive you, receive your righteousness and begin to walk the rest of their days with you. Pray for all of us, Lord, that you would help us by your spirit to stumble forward even as we uh, live this life, Lord. We want to honor you and glorify you, empower us by your spirit for your purposes, for your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.